Well, it's my privilege and joy to preach to you all this morning on Solus Christus from Hebrews 10, 1 to 25. Um, I love series on sola, especially on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, but I have to admit that there was a little part in me that just jumped when I got the chance to preach on Solus Christus. This is the part of the Reformation gospel where we simply affirm all that Christ alone has done for us. And I love to talk about that. So, um, I have prayed for you this week that you will rejoice with me in the glories of our great high priest and his sufficient sacrifice for us this morning. I'm going to read Hebrews 10, 1 to 25, all the way through, and then I'm going to exposit it for you. Please follow along with me uh, in the pew Bible in front of you or your, your own Bible. I think it also is supposed to be on the screen behind me. Hebrews 10, 1 to 25. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are added according to the law, don't you know, right? Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as has become the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Surely, we have parachuted into a foreign land without much knowledge of the geography and the terrain on which we are walking in reading this text. Let's briefly fly over Hebrews to get a survey. In chapters 1 to 2, Jesus, the God-man, and David's greater son is better than the angels. In chapters 3 to 4, Jesus is a better mediator than Moses and a better conqueror than Joshua. Jesus supplies the eternal rest or the Sabbath rest for which our hearts long. In chapters 5 to 10, roughly, Hebrews presents Jesus' priesthood as better than the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood. Those priests died. That's what he says. Time and time and time again. They live, they minister, then they die. But Jesus lives forever, right? Those priests offered sacrifices, plural, for their own sins. And then for the sins of the people. Jesus, needing no sacrifice for himself, offers himself once for all of our sins. Hebrews 11, 1 to 12, 13 is a reminder of the faithful perseverance of the Old Testament saints. And finally, Hebrews 12, 14 to the end of the sermon reorients Christians for life in a hostile world. Now, I would be remiss if I failed to mention that the author to the Hebrews peppers his sermon with warnings passages as well as exhortations in the midst of all of this amazing and wonderful teaching about Jesus. You see, the author isn't merely interested in giving a lecture or good information on Jesus, but he clearly does that. He preaches the glorious Christ on the one hand, you see, in order that the church might run after him and follow him and patiently inherit the promises through faith, right? Jesus is glorious. The moment you take time to meditate upon him and what he's done for you, don't you just want to run after him, right? Every time I read Hebrews, I'm, I'm caught up in this running the race again, following Jesus. But on the other hand, the author to the Hebrews also warns these believers about the disasters that would await them if they fell away or if they failed to finish the race. He oftentimes balances those warnings with, with immediate sweet encouragement. You see, this author wants the church to finish the race, to follow Jesus, its pioneer and trailblazer. He wants the church to follow Jesus as pioneer all the way to glory. Jesus has finished his course, you see. We must follow him in order to enter into his glory. 
Now, this isn't my sermon topic this morning, but it's very important to see here that whatever the author preaches in this sermon, he is aiming at one end, that the church would persevere to the end. He earnestly desires for the church to follow the road of the Son of God to glory, which is like a wave. Have you pictured the work of the eternal Son in eternal glory and fellowship with Father, Holy Spirit? That Son adds humanity, doesn't he? He doesn't lose his divinity. Let's be very clear about that. He adds humanity when he becomes incarnated. He then uh, obeys, suffers, dies. He's buried, just like we sung about this morning. But he's still not, he's on the grave, is he? On the third day, he was raised, right? And he was ascended into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. You see... The son gave up his riches. He learned obedience. He suffered, died, and was buried. Rose on the third day, ascended into heaven, sits now at the right hand of God. In all of this, you see, Hebrews calls him a pioneer. Typically in your Bibles, it's the word author. I don't like that translation. He's a pioneer. He's a trailblazer. He's the only one to have done this, you see. But as a pioneer, that means he's opening up a new and living way to God. And as chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 says, he is leading many sons and daughters to glory. We like the reward that we'll obtain. We don't often think about the suffering part, the obedience part, the death part. That's the road to the sun, the road of the sun. He obeyed, suffered, died. We'll do the same. But here's the good news. Just as he was raised, just as he entered into glory, so will we also. So with this context in mind, we now turn to Hebrews 10, 1 to 25. And we should be able to see that verses 1 to 18 teach the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and priesthood. And verses 19 to 25 consist of the author's inference, namely, that because of Christ's sacrifice, true, confident, and corporate worship of the living God has been inaugurated. Let's take these in turn. We'll need the next slide. There we go. I've adapted the structure from, uh, that's on the screen from commentator William Lane. Very good commentator, by the way. What it shows is that the author's thoughts are arranged in such a way that the author questions the sufficiency of the Old Testament sacrificial system in terms of forgiveness in the A sections. So you've got the insufficient repetition of sacrifices in the first four verses, but that's going to be balanced by the sufficient provisions for forgiveness in the New Covenant. The B sections, he shows that Christ has superseded both the Levitical sacrifices and priests. So let's look at chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. I won't read it again. Uh, it would take too long to read this twice. So let's just look at these verses. In 10, 1 to 4, 
The author argues, by the way, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, so I'm just going to keep calling him the author. The author argues that the yearly sacrifices for sin actually became a reminder of sin each year. For 1,400 years, Israel had been offering yearly sacrifices for sin, and in the day of the author of Hebrews, Jews were still offering yearly sacrifices for sin on the Day of Atonement, as prescribed in Leviticus 16.34. They did this continually. The author of the Hebrews reads the Old Testament very carefully and concludes that this very repetition shows that these offerings became a reminder that their sins were never finally atoned. For the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. The law contained a shadow of the good things to come, not the image itself of these realities. That is, the very repetition of these yearly sacrifices showed that they were only a type or a pattern or a picture of the ultimate atoning sacrifice to come. Why could the blood of bulls and goats not take away sin and perfect the worshiper? I mean, blood is spilt. There's a substitute. What's the problem? Well, as we'll see in the next section, well, these were not willing sacrifices. Now, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I've used my imagination for this one. See if you can do the same. <clears throat> the farmer who needs beef doesn't say to the bulls, all right, which one of you is going to lay your life down for me and my family. And, you know, one steps out, right? And the farmer sort of slits its throat, right? This doesn't happen, right? Similarly, again, I'm just imagining. This is a sanctified imagination, I hope. Just imagining that uh, the ancient Israelite family doesn't have a willing bull or goat who is outpacing them all the way to the altar in Jerusalem, saying, I'm ready to die for the Guri family, or I'm ready to die for the Newkirk family. Right? Slip my throat, it's right here. Right, the, the bull or the goat, they're not doing that, are they? No, of course not. The ancient Israelite dragged that offering all the way to the priest at the altar, and it was slain there. It was a substitute for the person, but it was not a willing substitute that came to do the will of God, as we'll see in a moment. Now, one more difficulty to explain from these verses. Did the Old Testament saint experience any kind of forgiveness? It's a big question. When I read of David's confession and experience of forgiveness in Psalm 32 or Psalm 51, or of Abraham being counted as righteous in Genesis 15, 6, it appears to me that the Old Testament saint experiences forgiveness from God in some way. The author to the Hebrews does say that the law contained a shadow of the good things to come. He does not say that shadow and substance are entirely unrelated. Here's how I think we ought to explain this seeming contradiction within the Bible. We ought to picture forgiveness in the Old Testament as happening on divine credit. That is, sins were paid for under the Old Covenant as we might pay bills with a credit card. 
The bill is paid in the near term, right? But we understand that the bill is not paid in any ultimate way. All right? Paul says something similar in Romans 3, 23 to 26. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. By faith and following the law of Old Testament sacrifices, one in the Old Testament could experience forgiveness with God. But Christ's sacrifice paid the sin debt in full for all those who have faith in him. This is an important point for us today because I don't think Hebrews is saying we don't need the Old Testament because it was only filled with shadows and patterns and types. In chapter 11, he will go on to recount all of the stories of these Old Testament saints in a way that makes us want to go back and read more about them. On this side of the cross, however, we can pray and confess our sins with the language of the Psalms and be reminded that with faith and a broken and contrite heart over sin, we are ultimately forgiven by God in Christ. Now, just how does Christ's sacrifice accomplish such an ultimate and substantive atonement? The author takes this point up in our next section in verses 5 to 10. In verses 5 to 10, the author presents the solution to this yearly sacrifice problem. How can this sin debt be finally paid? Pay attention, brothers and sisters. Because the answer to this question is why you and I get up every morning. Right? Because if this isn't true, we might as well stay in bed. Might as well stay in bed. But, but the hope is in these verses right here. The answer comes down to a man who wants and desires to do the will of God, even to the point of sacrificial death. Christ's work and sacrifice was voluntarily offered up to God on our behalf. The author cites the words of David in Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. Let me read those words from Psalm 40. It says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your love or your law is within my heart. So here's David, right, described elsewhere as a man after God's own heart. The end of verse 8 says that he has hidden God's law in his heart in accordance with the instruction of Deuteronomy 17 for the king. He was the model citizen in Israel. The people should be able to look at the way he obeys God and acts as God's son, and even be able to gain a glimpse of who God is by the way David lived. David knows that God wants willful obedience, not mere sacrifice. The way the ESV expresses God's preparation of David in verse 6 
is, but you have given me an open ear. The Hebrew literally has, but you have dug out ears for me. That is, there was something blocking David's hearing, some spiritual impediment that kept him from being God's faithful servant king. But God dug out his ears to remove the impediment to prepare David for willful service of him. Now, as weird as the expression, dig out the ears, sounds in English, so it also sounded in Greek. So that when the Greek translator of Psalms came to this verse, he provided a smoother expression. He rendered it as such, but you prepared a body for me which means the same as what is in the Hebrew. God prepared a body for David in the sense that he made him a willing and obedient king who delights to do God's will. Now, I know that last part was geeking out on you a little bit. Typical of a seminary professor, I suppose. But you needed to be aware of that issue because there is some tension in wording between Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10 in the ESV and the English Bible tradition in general. But lest we lose sight of the forest for the trees here, the point in Hebrews is that when the Son became incarnate, that is, notice, when he came into the world, God prepared a body for him to do the will of God. Hebrews interprets these verses as God removing the sacrificial system with its plethora of unwanted sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which the people offered according to the law, of course, in order to establish the second point, the God-man who has come to do the will of God. That is, the Son incarnate in his human nature. Note the I have come to do the will of the triune God. That includes, by the way, the Son and his divine nature, you see. The atonement that forgives us that satisfies the wrath of God, is Trinitarian. Not only was the Father's wrath satisfied, as our favorite, one of our favorite songs goes, the wrath of Father, Son, and Spirit was satisfied. Okay? Atonement is an act of the Trinitarian God. But notice in verse 10, it is not without an offering that we have been sanctified. Rather, it is by God's will we have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So even though the law with its shadows of yearly sacrifices commanded the people to offer sacrifices continually, it was all a preparation for the single offering of the willing body of Jesus Christ once for all. Brothers and sisters, in verses 5 to 10, we have arrived back at ground zero, the baseline, the foundation for our faith and our only confidence before God. Never depart from this truth. We are forgiven once for all, and our consciences are clear of sin and guilt because of Christ's willing sacrifice of himself. He came to do the will of God, which meant obedience to death, even death on a cross. By no other means can we be cleansed and forgiven. Solus Christus, right? 
There are many imposters in the world today claiming to grant peace or peace of mind or to boost your self-esteem or what have you. They propose meditation or other means of self-help in order to achieve peace with oneself. They promise that if you declare in Jesus' name and faith that God will give you your best life now. There are other religions out there saying, if you try harder, you can have peace with God. However, the problem with all these solutions is that none of them take our real plight seriously enough. We are sinners before God, brothers and sisters. Our consciences are laden with guilt. We are at odds with our Creator and the way of life He demands. We are not in need of peace of mind or the like. Our deepest need is a clear conscience before God. We need our sin dealt with so that we can live truly confidently before Him and others without hypocrisy. We need cleansing and forgiveness that can come from only God Himself. Only Jesus Christ, Solus Christus, as our great high priest, guarantees this status before God. All of, all of the imposters can't deliver a true worship of God without hypocrisy. They cannot do it. So, brothers and sisters, what imposters have you listened to this week, suggesting all sorts of ways for you to clean yourself up and be more pleasing to God and more palatable to others? What was the advice on Facebook or Instagram? What tweet spoke to you? To what voices did you and are you listening in order to gauge your approval with God and others. In all of the chaos and confusion, make sure you're still listening to the only voice that counts and that says, you, Christian, belong to me because of Christ's sufficient priesthood and willing sacrifice. All right, we've got to keep moving. 10, 11 to 14, the one enthroned priest supersedes the Levitical priests. Verses 11 to 14 begin very similar to verses 1 to 4. Notice the emphasis on the daily, the, 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 the same sacrifices. Notice also these sacrifices were never able to take away sin once again. Whereas in 10.1, the law contained a shadow of the good things to come with reference to the sacrifices, the conclusion of 10.11 is that the law also contained a shadow of the good things to come with reference to a better priest. In 10.11, every priest stood daily, ministering and offering the same sacrifices regularly. Go back to Leviticus 24, 1-9, maybe this afternoon. We, don't, we never get there in our yearly Bible readings, so just skip there. Notice all the busyness of the priests and the Levites. These guys never sleep, it seems. They are constantly moving in and about the holy place, making sure that lampstand is always burning, making sure that bread of presence is always there, constantly working. Many of them, many hands made for light work, I guess. And yet, 
no ability to take away sin. In 10.12, we read the contrast. But this one, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, he's not standing, the text says. He sat down at the right hand of God. Note the emphasis on one priest, one offering, sitting down at the right hand of God in heaven. In 10.13, Jesus, our high priest, is waiting for all his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. That is, the king priest has been enthroned, but his enemies have not been subdued at present. One day they will be. But this is why, as Pastor Chuck prayed, we've got mass murder, mass warfare in other parts of the country, even in this country, though it's just a little quieter right? Because not all of Jesus' enemies have been put under his feet yet. But earlier in Hebrews, we see Jesus. And here, we see Jesus as our great high priest, which gives us great confidence and great hope that someday all of God's enemies will be dealt with, and they will become the footstool for Christ's feet. Verse 14 deserves a little bit of attention. By Christ's one offering, he has perfected the ones being sanctified continually. Notice that this directly contradicts the Old Testament sacrifices, which were never able to perfect the worshipers back in verse 1. But Christ's sacrifice perfects. Now, the language of perfection in the book of Hebrews is a bit confusing to us. In Hebrews 2, 10 and 11, there's a comment on the sons being made perfect. Surely, that doesn't mean that the Son became morally perfect, right? Or some such interpretation. In what sense did the Son become perfect? And in what sense are we said to be made perfect in this verse? Well, the word perfected would be better translated and understood to mean consecrated or devoted. I don't have time to show this in full, but this word is commonly used in the Old Testament to anoint or consecrate priests to their service, okay? It's got zip to do with their moral character. It has everything to do with them being installed into the office of priest, okay? And uh, we have that here as well. When Christ is said to be made, the Son is said to be made perfect, he's not adding moral perfection to himself. It's just that the suffering made him fit, for high priestly work, you see. The verb perfect or perfect is not to be understood in a moral sense. That is, this verse is certainly not talking about all of us being made morally perfect. This would be the best church in history if that were the case. <laughs> That's not what this verse is saying. This verse describes a people who belong to God who have been consecrated to God. It's a relational term. Christ's one offering has forever consecrated a people who now belong to him. The Old Testament sacrifices could not do this. The text says, though, that he consecrated those who are being continually sanctified. Therefore, Christ has consecrated a people, but that people, the text says, is still being sanctified. In other words, believers in Jesus have been consecrated to God. 
That is, they belong to him, but they are also continuously devoting themselves to God as they follow Jesus. In other words, all who belong to God <laughs> continually show that by devoting themselves to him. There's no room in this text for a person to say that Christ perfected or consecrated him or her who is not continually devoting himself or herself to God. Those for whom Christ died live a devoted life to God, which in turn shows that they belong to God. This does not mean they are perfect, morally speaking. What it means is that they continually devote themselves to the ways of God. They confess their sins and their need of Christ's sacrifice on their behalf, right? They follow Christ, their pioneer, in faith and obedience through all which he leads them on their way to share in his glory. In short, fundamentally, this people who belong to God based on Christ's single sacrifice once for all persevere in the race till the end. It's not about how you begin in the book of Hebrews. It is about how you end. If you start well on the road to the sun but bail out, there'll be no glory for you. None. Imagine saying that about Jesus. Man, he started well. He came down from heaven. But man, when that cross came, he just said, wait, I was promised my best life now, so I'm out. No. Sticks to the plan of redemption, doesn't he? And he goes all the way through the road, the trailblazing activity, all the way to glory. So we're not, we're not paving the path, right? We're not trailblazing. That's what he did. But we're following. And you have to follow the sun. If you want the glory of the sun, you have to follow the sun through suffering and ultimately death to be raised and to come into the glory of the Son of God. Let's go to verses 10 to 15 to 18 here. We better keep moving. The author makes his final conclusion on the matter here. For this one, he can appeal to no greater witness than the Holy Spirit himself, who testifies in Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34, that God has made a new covenant in which the law will be written on the heart and on the minds of the people. After this, he then says in verse 17, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. The author draws one simple conclusion in verse 18. Where there is forgiveness for these things, that is sin and lawless deeds, there is no longer an offering for sin. That is, if you're contemplating leaving Jesus today, where's going to be your other offering for sin? Where are you going to find forgiveness? See, if you're with Jesus now, you've got, you've got that one offering for sin and lawless deeds, right? But if it's there, you see, there, there is no other, he's saying. Where are you going to run? Self-help? Good luck. Islam? Buddhism? Where is that offering for sin? He's saying there is none if you've already got it. Stick with Jesus. Stick with Jesus. It's not your best life now. It's, it's, it's your best life later, right? 
But at least here with Jesus, you've got an answer to your fundamental problem. And that is forgiveness of sins before God and a clear conscience to come into God's heavenly throne room. You don't have that anywhere else but in Jesus. So are you struggling with some kind of guilt or feeling of unworthiness before God this morning? Take heart and grasp confidence in Jesus Christ. He lives, you see. In chapter 7 of Hebrews, He lives to make intercession for you so that He might save you to the uttermost, is what the text says. Remember the visible sign in the Lord's Supper that He gave us to strengthen our faith in Him. The bread and the cup put His death for us and our forgiveness on display. They also proclaim that He's coming again. Take heart in the Lord's Supper. Take refuge in Christ this week. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood and sacrifice. He's better than any other plastic gospel out there today. He is worthy of your trust. Remember that in Christ, God no longer remembers your sin. There is absolute and definitive forgiveness in Christ's sacrifice. The Old Testament anticipated such a new reality, and it has come to pass. Whatever it is that you think is better than Jesus this week, that is, whatever is hindering your perseverance and faithfulness to God, right? What is that sin or this temptation, right, that he's going to say in chapter 12 that so easily entangles you? What is that this week that needs to just be cast off so that you can run the race? What's hindering you? Jesus is better. He's worthy of your following. Is it your pride this week? Is it your lusts? Is it your worldly ambitions that cause you to slow down in your race, that cause you to stop and just to hesitate a moment? Is Jesus really better than porn? Is Jesus really better than materialism? Is Jesus really better than money? What is it? Cast it off. Jesus is better. Those things that I just named cannot provide forgiveness of sins and clear consciences before the one who created you. The things which compete for your worship of Jesus, cut those off today. Those competitors are imposters. Though they pose as, as the pleasures of God at His right hand, they are only counterfeits. Only counterfeits. Jesus is the substance. Only in Him do we arrive at the rest that our souls desire. Only in Him do we arrive at the joy that we long for. 
None of these things can give you what you ultimately seek. Even though your desires sometimes cloud your vision, I know. We all fall short, James says, in many ways. You desire peace and reconciliation and rest with your Creator God. That is what you desire most, as made in His image. This peace can only be found by following Jesus Christ alone on the road of the sun. Okay. That's verses 1 to 18. The next section is shorter. Can we get the next slide? Here we go. All right. The therefore in verse 19 clearly marks verses 19 to 25 as the direct inference of Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice for his people. Really, 10, 19 to 25 could be the, the stunning conclusion to the section that began maybe back as early as chapter 7 or even chapter 4. He's been coming to this point. The Jews, thinking that maybe they can get this genuine, authentic worship at the temple that is still standing. The author is going to show them that no, that is counterfeit worship. The real worship that you seek is direct access to the heavenly temple where God is enthroned. That's what verses 19 to 25 are about. First of all, he reviews the sacrifice of Jesus in verses 19 to 21. Clearly, the author says that we have free access to God's heavenly sanctuary so that we can worship Him. In verses 19 to 20, the author reviews the results of Christ's sacrifice or the blood of Jesus. Notice he says that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the curtain. Now, the curtain probably refers to the real curtain of the heavenly sanctuary, just as it refers to a real curtain in 619 and 93. Here also, the curtain is probably real, but now it must refer to the curtain of the heavenly sanctuary by which we all have free access to God's throne room. The curtain is also identified, did you see it? Through uh, This is... His flesh, right? The curtain is also identified with Christ's flesh or His sacrificial death that opened up this new and living way to God's heavenly temple for the purpose of worshiping Him. That's the briefest I can make that, which maybe some of you are cheering for. <laughs> verses 22 to 25. True worship is now described in verses 22 to 25. There are three exhortations that the author, uh, and the author uses the plural we in each of them. The plural highlights the corporate nature of worship. It's interesting that the author immediately addresses the body of believers. I've wondered this, right? He, he could have highlighted our individual freedom to go before God in heaven he could have let out with that and then kind of drifted back, you know, to the corporate just kind of as the footnote. Do you catch what I'm getting, where I'm going? Worship is corporate. Let us approach, right? Let us approach. Maybe corporate worship here, the nature of Worship as being corporate is a point that we Phoenicians, who tend to be a bit 
more individualistic uh, in our outlook on life, uh, maybe we should take this to heart. Notice the togetherness of verses 22 to 25. In verse 22, we together are exhorted to come to God as true worshipers. I say true because the author describes these worshipers as follows. Let us approach with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Maybe some of you are thinking, yikes. I mean, I took a shower this morning, but I mean, how, how is my conscience cleansed? How is my heart cleansed? These people are described as New Covenant people according to Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I don't have time to turn there. You should look at those verses this afternoon. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. The evil conscience and the false heart have been removed according to this author. These were barriers that hindered worship of God under the Old Covenant. But now, all members of the new covenant can stand in the heavenly throne room of God, represented by Jesus Christ, and enjoy free and unhindered worship of God. There's no pope to go through. There's no high priest in Jerusalem to go through. There's a heavenly high priest who ministers in a heavenly temple. And this text says we are we are more than encouraged. We are exhorted to approach that temple and to approach that high priest in the throne room of grace. Also, notice that little reference to our bodies washed with pure water. I think this expression probably refers to baptism, the new covenant testimony that God has cleansed and transformed the heart. The outward sign of the baptism of the body is indicative of the inward reality of the cleansed heart. I love preaching in Baptist churches because you should agree with everything I just said in that paragraph. Yeah, I see the, sh the head shaking. There we go. Right. Good. Whew. All right. Therefore, all those who have been regenerated and have trusted in Christ and have been unified with him in baptism are called to come to God for worship with true hearts. But there's more. In verse 23... We're encouraged to hold to the confession of hope without wavering. The phrase, hold fast the confession of hope, probably calls us to have firm confidence in the gift of salvation that God has given to us on the basis of Christ's priesthood and sacrifice. In Hebrews, hope can sum up the entire Christian life. The church is to hold fast the confession of their salvation without wavering. The author is calling the people to be stable and to affirm their privileged status as those who come to God through Christ. Part of our worship together is to be stable in our position in Christ. This is not to say, brothers and sisters, that there will be no doubts in our lives. Okay? I don't, this could be misunderstood. Many of us have, maybe are, and will struggle with doubt 
but I want you to hear this command. Let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. This command is encouraging you to move past doubt. Okay? And why? Because, because the author, by the Holy Spirit, is fully convinced that if we've got the sufficient priest and the sufficient sacrifice and full direct access by a new and living way to the heavenly temple, well, maybe we don't need to doubt. But some of us will still doubt. I understand. I understand. But look to Jesus and heed this exhortation to hold fast to the confession of hope, okay, and without wavering. Now, he doesn't just leave it there. He gives you one other very explicit ground. He says, for the one who promised is faithful. Right? Hold fast, for the one who promised is faithful. God will never forsake his promise. He's not the one who wavers. Rather, he is constant and faithful to his promises, particularly the new covenant promises. In Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. There it is again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're doubting, wavering. Reflect on the solidity of the great high priest who is not so ethereal and so heavenly, but actually took on human nature and actually can sympathize with our weaknesses, right? This is big. This is why we have to always affirm both his deity and his humanity because he became like one of the children of Abraham, he, became, he, he, he took on flesh and blood, chapter 2 of Hebrews. He identified with us in our weaknesses so that he can be a sympathetic high priest. Last part, verses 24 to 25. Notice that worship as defined by the author here can't take place by yourself on a deserted island. There, I just said it. Yeah. As much as I love the woods and the mountains of Flagstaff, doesn't fit the author's definition of worship. All true worship has a focus on God and on our fellow family members. The author says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. The verb gets at provoking one another. How do we literally get a rise out of one another? To, to undertake love and to undergo good deeds. Loving good deeds clearly refers to the practical ways in which Christians are to care for one another. Verse 25 elaborates just a little bit on what it means to consider one another. He goes on to say, Not forsaking the assemblings of yourselves, as is the habit or the custom of some, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Notice how the author ties yours and my eager expectation of the day of the Lord to gathering 
corporately. In fact, he ties our mutual encouragement to gathering together. Free and unhindered worship of God through Christ expresses itself practically in the body of Christ. Those of I've been there. You want to climb the mountain and be alone with God. I get it. You might even have given up on the church now, and you simply think you can follow Jesus better on your own. But if I'm understanding this text right, the sufficient high priest, the sufficient sacrifice, the new and living way to the heavenly temple, this wonderful grand access and approach to God that you want on your own, doesn't happen on your own. It happens in corporate worship. It happens as a body. How do we stir up one another to love and good deeds? Well, of course, this will look different in different contexts, but one thing is certain, you have to meet together. We have to gather together. And this is not some empty ritual. It is vital to our perseverance in the faith to the end and our looking ahead to the day of the Lord drawing near. In closing, just a few more applicational questions. Brothers and sisters, how is your worship today? For starters, are we here this morning because we think somehow subtly, we wouldn't come out and just confess it openly, but maybe subtly, that we've somehow earned access to God because of the way we have lived this week? Married couples, were you just excelling in the areas of intimacy and serving one another this week? Of course, those are good things. But they're not why you worship God with true hearts this morning. Singles, were you valiant in your fight against sin and striving for holiness this week? Of course, those are good things. But that's not why you're worshiping truly this morning. Or maybe it's the opposite. And this morning, you're wondering deep inside yourself why you even showed up here at all. For who could accept you because of what you did or didn't do this week? Certainly God could not. Maybe your marriage was on the rocks and you barely spoke to one another or had any interaction with each other at all. Does God still accept me? You may be asking. Maybe some are wondering whether their quiet times with the Lord this week were sufficient to allow them to worship God. Others of you might be conjuring up your job performance or the number of followers you gained on Twitter in order to establish your worthiness for worship here this morning. Brothers and sisters, of course, all of these examples of establishing one's worth before God and therefore having access to His throne room, right? These are entirely wrong. Our best and worst of deeds, our most confident moments of faith, and our worst times of doubt... Do not change the one offering of the body of Jesus Christ that consecrated us to God once for all. We have a new and living access to God's heavenly temple and throne room through the flesh of Christ alone, solus Christus. Because of his one offering, we can approach God with true hearts and full assurance of faith. We can hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering. 
for he who promised is faithful. Lastly, we can consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Christ's one offering changes the way we relate to one another. It's not the way we, <clears throat> it's not the way we relate to one another that influences how God accepts us. Let's worship God corporately, sincerely, and without hypocrisy this week, all the while as we watch for the day of the Lord to draw near. Please join me in prayer.